What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2. I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling good. This week is the week in the U.S. where a lot of people are starting to be able to get the vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine. I put my name on one of those website lists where they're like, we have a last minute thing. I got the call. I got there. I got a jab of Pfizer. And I feel good about the potential of what this vaccine can help do to get us back and moving in society. I haven't switched over to Microsoft yet. I'm still running on my Mac. I'm not feeling any 5G flowing through my veins as I'm making phone calls. We'll see if that changes, but I assume I'm good. And speaking of getting back to society, I announced a European tour for this October. It felt kind of weird to announce a tour at this moment. Like, I couldn't imagine going to a show right now. But all the local promoters and the booking agents said, now is a great time, and we are hopeful and knowing that things are going to be cool in October. Great. So if you live in Europe, check out my website. I got a bunch of tour dates up. And I am stoked to get back on the road. I've put out a bunch of music over the last year. If you haven't checked it out, go to Spotify right now and just save it you know, whatever, to listen to it later when you're done with this podcast. That being said, I got a lot of new material to play live, and I am excited about it. It's going to be fun. And I'm going to a lot of my favorite cities. All right, today on the podcast, we have Ani DeFranco. Some of you folks know that I'm an MTV kid. I grew up with MTV basically as my babysitter. So I was familiar with Ani since I was a kid, and I was always very impressed. I saw very early on that she was somebody who was using music and using her art for more than just herself. Through the majority of her career, she's basically been using music as a voice for cultural and social change, which is awesome. That made an impact on me as a kid, but also still to this day, seeing what she has cultivated, not in her own music and art, but also with her record label, Righteous Babe Records, which we talk about because it is awesome that she has basically formed her own label, starting at a time where managers would have said, you have to be on a major label. You can't do this by yourself. Well, she proved them wrong. That's awesome. Now, she's been about social change. Maybe some of that has to do with her crediting Pete Seeger as one of her mentors. I love Pete Seeger's music. And being from that lineage and being from that kind of folk, rock, blues, jazz-infused things, everything else of her musical influences, as a guitar player, she's come up with some really interesting and unique ways of approaching the instrument, mostly with alternate tunings, which is really fun. And she gets into that in the interview. I'm a big fan of Ani. I love what she does. I am a huge proponent of creating art and music for a purpose greater than yourself. And she is a shining example of that. So let's get to it. You guys hit the distro kid yet? It is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, pretty much anywhere else that people consume music. You can get an account starting at $19.99 per year. Per year, you get unlimited uploads and you keep 100% of your earnings. 100%. So for somebody like me, I put out, I put out a lot of albums last year. It was still just one annual price no matter how many albums I have up, and I keep 100% of the earnings that come in. There's a lot of reasons I love DistroKid, but the ones I want to highlight here are the Teams feature. So basically, I can assign a percentage of royalties to go to any of my collaborators, however we work it out, or my managers work with their managers, and we work out you know whatever percentage split. My percentage goes to me, and then DistroKid gives the other percentage to the other collaborator or artist. It works amazing and neither one of us as artists needs to handle the accounting distro kid just does it for us set if you'd like to give them a try use my vip link to get 30 percent off your first year of distro kid membership distrokid.com slash vip slash cory wong there it is let's get to the episode ani thank you so much for joining us it's really fun to have you on the show Thanks for having me. It's nice to talk to another human. It sure is. I'm a tiny square where humans come from now. <laughs> I have so many questions about artistry, about business, about your your creative approach through the years. But because we're a guitar podcast, I want to start with some guitar-centric questions, not guitar-center questions, because we don't need to discuss 
their business platform. You play so many different tunings on the guitar and you make up your own, which is so cool. And I'm sure that has something to do with your creative output and the voicings you get. Where did that come from? Why, why not just standard tuning? Once upon a time, somebody showed me dadgad and I was <laughs> off to the races. I mean, it was so cool to change it up. You know, it's like you, you're a painter, whatever. You got your little palette of colors and then somebody's like, oh, have you tried chartreuse? Or, you know, you, you reorganize them and suddenly they all sort of look different when they're next to a different color. You know, it's just changing up the tuning was intriguing to me obviously from the get-go and then I just kind of went with it because for for a major factor was that I got a guitar tech blessed as my life has been you know I had a crew I had some people to help and by the time I got a guitar tech and I wasn't responsible for going (laughs) between all those tunings all night long it was on as you're talking about and as I'm thinking about the amount of tunings I am thinking just in in sheer terror and scaredness for myself as your guitar, if I'm your guitar tech, thinking, oh my gosh, am I giving her the right guitar? Is this the right one? Uh, did they change the set list? Is it, uh, uh, oh, what, uh, uh. So d- how many guitars do you bring out on the road and, and what is your studio setup? Or is it just, oh yeah, I'm tuning up between songs and that sort of thing? I mean, it used to be, you know, but I've led this, this, this privileged, entitled life with slaving guitar techs. Yeah, it's, it's daunting being my guitar tech, it's true, but <laughs> But I actually enjoy the, sometimes I'll get a guitar and the tuning is one note off, one string is, and I have, and I got to figure it out on the fly and retune it. That's like my, that's my challenge. It's the folk singer challenge. I like yeah. to rap to it, <laughs> you know, it's fun. Um, so how many guitars do you normally have out with you on I your got tour? six that I rotate on stage, five or six, but it's sort of three standard acoustic guitars barely in standard tuning but then i have a baritone guitar a tenor guitar and then a baby guitar like a very small bodied thing that just has a totally different vibe is there any particular brands or types of guitars that are go-tos for you gibson these days i mean alvarez guitar alvarez has been so kind to me since i started you know i was a young muppet baby folk singer they were giving me stuff at cost. And then, you know, they actually have designed guitars for me over the years and done all sorts of cool things. Um, but more recently in life, I've been playing older style Gibsons. Sure. T60s. Cool. That's great. Is there particular tunings that are go to, all right, these are my, not standard tuning, but these are the standard Ani tunings. I mean, there's a few that I have worked that I have beat like dead horses for sure. You know, <laughs> a, a kind of an E minory tuning mm. where instead of the A string, the second it would be B B, you know, you make two B's. Oh uh, yeah. And uh yeah, E B B blah, 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 whatever you want, A D or A E or I I a lot of different permutations of that kind of E minor-ish tuning have factored into many songs you know once i find a cool tuning family i try to milk it yeah so that guitar, you know so i can string those guitar uh songs in a row and just try to take it a little easy on myself and guitar techs well what was your first album in was it what year was your first album that you officially said i'm doing the thing well i guess 89 there was a secret first album before my first album. Which that, is what I had heard, which is why I kind of phrased the question loosely. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, see, honest, old, honest Abe folks. <laughs> yeah, there's like a hundred copies of that sucker out there and I am intend to hunt them all down and, and, and burn them by the time. <laughs> and then I'll start on the rest of the catalog. But yeah, yeah 1989. So has your approach to playing guitar changed much since that first official album to now? I guess so. I mean, my approach to everything else has changed pretty radically many times over. So, but I mean, I guess there's always an essential you that's happening wherever we go. There you are, you know? So um, when I was quite young, I don't know, 1990 or 91, or I started experimenting with the like uh, glued on nails, plastic yeah. And then, uh, you know, I got heavier and heavier. I got this super heavy gauge nails that 
were made by Naylene and they actually went out of production many years ago. And I panicked when I stopped finding them in drugstores. I had no idea why they were selling such thick claws as fashion nails, but they did for a while. And then they stopped. I panicked. I called the company and bought out their stock. (laughs) I have boxes of Naylene's former action length (laughs) brand, but lately, you know, and I, so yeah, I, I, in order to play really hard in a way that my human nails would not tolerate. And then I started wrapping them in electrical tape for extra protection and torque. And so I've been rocking that for decades. And lately, a recent change I've noticed, I guess the pandemic, I haven't been on stage, so I don't apply my talons and I just play with my, you know, flesh fleshy fingers lately and I'm kind of getting I wonder if I'll start going on stage naked that way yeah <laughs> naked fingers and all I do a lot of the classical guitar thing and have the natural nail the long nails but because I also play so much electric guitar my index finger is always scraping the strings so that one is always bare but the other ones are long and I've just had to deal with it I just I used to get fake nails on my index finger or try what you're talking about, wrapping them, doing all kinds of things. And eventually, it's just, it's not going to happen. So I just have figured out how to switch my technique to make it work. Right. And keep up your calcium intake or whatever. Yeah. That's you have, yeah, I know. I'm going to, I'm going to see what my nails are worth these days. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much everything has changed since 1989 as far as the way you approach things. I've asked some people and they say, oh, you know what? Honestly, I just feel like I'm doing the same thing just with my <laughs> unique uh, perspective because my perspective changes, but my musical approach is basically the same. And you talk about your guitar playing, your writing in as far as lyrical content, the way you produce and record albums. What do you feel is the biggest change for you personally as an artist in the way you make albums now versus 1989? Well, I mean, I guess for me, maybe introducing the element of time a little more into the process. Like I'm somebody who changes so fast. It's like by the evening, the morning, Ani is wrong, wrong, you know? And, and, and I think that's why I made so many records and so spit them into the world so fast. And it's because, wait, no, no, no. This is what I meant. Uh, no, wait, wait, you know. More recently in my life, I guess probably about the time of the advent of children, offspring, you know, they they just, they're like enter my life as just roadblocks, just total creative prophylactic. Like you just can't, you know. So it forced me to be patient. I can't move that fast. I can't dive that deep. I got to keep stepping away. Most of the time I have to dedicate to something else, my kids, you know, so that taught me to slow down. I think, I hope it's making me a better songwriter, maybe album producer or maker, you know, because just um, stepping away is powerful. Perspective is an awesome ingredient, you know, lo and behold. I find that my kids do both that and the exact opposite for me, where I have this chunk of time that's available. I need to just turn it on for this 20 minutes today. And somehow I'm able to do it. And and I'm forced to have this very potent amount of time because yeah. of the opposite. So I find kind of both sides of the spectrum just swinging so hard back and yeah. forth. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's the only rule. Yeah. <laughs> you, you get it. You get it all. Yeah. It, right. Well, that's amazing that you... And isn't, isn't that amazing that you, when you know you must, you call it, you power that, yeah, you're like, yeah, we're all like actors crying on cue. Like, <laughs> it's amazing that you can just make yourself go there because you know in one hour you got to pick them up. Exactly. But I think it's cool. And there's also a different inspiration. And for me, a different perspective. When I, when I had, since we're on the topic of kids, when my first daughter was born, it like unlocked this new world and level of love and perspective in my life that I actually just had no idea existed. Like playing a video game, oh, I feel like I beat this world in Mario. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, there's a completely new world. And I feel like as things have grown, I've unlocked this new world and this new 
depth of love that I just didn't know existed before. And now it's changed my perspective on even just my artistic expression of self. Mm, I love that. That's beautiful. I think for me, it came in a slightly different form of like, my kids brought to me simplicity and, Mm. you know, I was just always so frantically on a mission and there was so much to do and talk about and say and engage with. And and my kids brought me this new world of, oh, or I could just not do any of that for a moment and I could breathe and I could appreciate something very simple. And I think uh, maybe it has inspired me to try to express myself more simply mm. as well, you know, in my art and yeah, just like take it down a notch. Oh, wow. That's powerful too. How do you keep things exciting for yourself and for your audience over the span of making records for years and years? I'm trying to solve that real and make sure I'm, I still feel like I'm, I'm really getting going. And a lot of artists that, and guitar players that are listening feel like, all right, I'm, kind of getting off the ground here but how do i how do i make sure that it stays exciting for me and stays exciting for the audience yeah i mean that's such a personal uh recipe right so like for me yeah i've been facing it for i mean i've been at it 30 years like performing live writing song doing this shtick right so yeah i have definitely felt that tension that you're talking about in your art trajectory you know how do you keep it fresh for me there is something inherently just first off the bat of being confronted with an audience that's just fresh yeah you know if you're really present you know that Mm -hmm. there's something new happening every time so that's i find very renewing is just playing live like it's my job you know and um uh more recently in life you know after hundreds of songs of expressing myself i'm i'm kind of over that right and you know uh more from ani's perspective so i think in my mind i've been more intrigued by well i'm writing a musical right now based on this story of restorative justice of this uh, perpetrator and survivor of a crime and how they came together. It's actual two people and their story. And so like writing around a story, writing for a story that's outside of my own story uh, is intriguing me now. Stuff like that, you know, writing a book that I did is a whole, was a whole other kind of bag of donuts and just finding ways to change it up, I guess keep pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. That's what I've been doing. You brought up a message with that musical that you're writing and something I've noticed through your entire discography, your career, even uh, the first time I was introduced to your music when I was a kid, there's a message bigger than yourself tied to what you do. And there's a larger purpose connected to your music and your artistry. What importance has that had for you? And what do you think the importance is of any artist to find that thing? Man, it's so motivating. It's so that of all the interviews I've done in my life, people don't really ask that question that way. I appreciate that. It's like, for me, the serving something bigger makes it all, it's, it's like if it was just to, I don't know, promote my new thing or sell my thing or sell myself or some, I think I would get really like, you see so many performers doing like, this is all meaningless. This is, I resent all this. This is all stupid. And you get very nihilistic and you get very pessimistic. But every moment that you spend serving something you really care about, it's like, it gives me energy to do interviews with, you know, and, and, you know, or, or get out there and do press or promote. If you're trying to amplify truths that you're aching to be in the world and sort of help propel a change that you can see is possible in P and, and help people fulfill their potential. I just help our society fulfill its potential. Yes. It's so motivating. It really, like, it's all the difference in the world to me. I don't know that I would have, maybe that's my new answer for the question, which I have heard a lot, which is where do you get your energy from? So much energy. You have so much energy. And I think, right, it's like, because I feel so excited by being 
a part of something. If I was not a part of something, I think it would get really old really quick. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And that seems to be a through line that I've noticed with a lot of artists that do have something that's tied to something much bigger than themselves, whether it be a certain issue that they're really passionate about or whether it be a certain cause or or whatever, something that's more than just, hey, listen to my new album because my managers want to make a bunch of money with me on this thing. You know, and that's fine. That's cool. That's great. You know, we're this as far as being a part of the music business, that's the reality of that. But yeah. to actually have that thing that 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 connects with people that is so intangible, the thing that that goes, oh, they really do mean this, rather than ah, uh, that she's doing the interview because she's got a new album. Ah, uh, she's she's kind of going out in press, or he's going out in press because he wants to sell more books or, or guitar cables or whatever, whatever they're doing. I think, you know, it has been a through line that I've noticed just watching people. Oh, that's really cool. I like that. I, I want to find that for myself. And I think the people that I'm involved with, it should be, there should be some sort of thing that, that keeps it motivating beyond just look at me, play the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. You were talking about it from one side, from the audience side, like it, it, it keeps people engaged on that deeper level of, I recognize you're trying to do something and I'm trying to do something and I can, I can relate to that. And then I was thinking from the performer side too, like, I wonder, I'm going to think about it more when we hang up, you know, like those people who are on some kind of mission, you know, social, political, bigger than trying to serve something like, are those people, it's, I think that's more sustainable. Like, as we're talking about, like, it's, it's, uh, those people have more stamina, you know, it's like we burn out when we're just right. Trying to do that quick, that quick fix thing. But when we're, when we're in something, you know, in the big, in the long game, it's, it, it's, there's more stamina to it. Do you think some of that comes for you from your, Pete Seeger lineage. I was just thinking about him. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, he's a great, just a great example. Yeah, it's like he's freaking 90, whatever, five, eight, and he's out there enjoying it and being a part, uh, and, you know, he's, he's occupying Wall Street and he's driving with his assistant, you know, in his station wagon to go do the benefit for the war resist or something, or, you know, and he's in his 90s. He's absolutely, you know, one of my heroes. And I think that just shows, like, yeah, the the kind of stamina that you can have when you really covet, you know, when you get when you get that opportunity to be, I don't know, I think of it as a real blessing to feel that sense of purpose, you yeah. know? Do you feel like if there's anything in particular you've learned from either spending time with him or spending time with his music? just the keeping it real front, you know, I mean, he's like, you know, I've, I've been, been, uh, shared so many stages and, and, you know, events with him and stuff. And he's just got this kind of unflappable realness, you know, on stage, off stage icon, you know, dude that you just asking a stupid question to he's, he's all very available and real. And I, I liked He's like, for me, one of the ultimate anti-heroes of, I, like I, I wrote in my book, you know, he was the kind of person who would turn out off. He would reach around behind you and turn off the spotlight you had on him. He'd just be like, click. Ah. Okay, now let's talk. You know, it's just that kind mm. of presence. And I, I've always, you know, I want to be him when I grow up for sure. <laughs> yeah. I definitely see the lineage in the music and in the in the vision. I think that that's really cool. It shows. I, I didn't know that when I first was hip to your music, but then after I learned about some of that, oh, that that makes sense. That's cool. That's great. Yeah, yeah, and that you know a, another kind of metaphor in my life, which goes with our conversation today, is like showing up to all those pop and rock festivals. I mean, I I I, I probably played more roots and folk festivals than yeah. than rock festivals, but I played plenty, and uh, especially in my heyday, you know, late nineties, early aughts, I was oh, I just 
Yeah, like that. When you're in an atmosphere of like, oh, everybody's trying to, we all got to be cool. I'm not cool enough. Wait, who's the, oh, you're, oh, you're so cool. Oh, oh. You know, it's, it's kind of exhausting. And then I would go to folk festivals and it was just all these like grumpy old dudes in the field. Like, <laughs> we're going to stop the war if it kills, you know, just like, yeah. I don't know. It was just so, refra- it felt so much more, again, sustainable. Like, yeah, I could do, I could do this. Yeah. <laughs> I can do yeah, I've actually noticed a similar thing in the jam scene where, well, not exactly the same. There's some crossover, but I think in the jam scene, sometimes it's less about the star or the spotlight, as you're talking about, as it is the moment. Mm-hmm. They want to share a moment. Okay, we like the songs. We like you as an artist because we feel like you're going to help be able to usher in a moment that we're only going to have now and that we're only going to be have if we are available, if we're yeah. present. Yeah. And that's a really fun thing is certain communities and certain genres, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but certain certain artistic communities and festivals and things are mm-hmm. are more open to that than others. I hear what you're saying. That's a good collective awareness. It takes all of us being here to really make something happen. Yeah. Now, I wonder if like at the other side of this pandemic, when live music cranks up again, if people will be exhausted by their screens and gizmos Mm. and pulling them out less at shows. I don't know. One can hope, you know, where it's like, we've just, we've been in here for a year. Now I just so want to not look at that thing for two hours with this band or whatever. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so too. All right. All right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about distro kid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. A lot of what we've talked about is in the vision and the bigger picture things and the higher meaning. But we did touch a little bit on the music business. And this is something I want to make sure I talk about with you because you are a pioneer for many of us who now it's kind of standard to be an independent artist and release your own music. You were doing this in 1989. You started your own label. And correct me if I'm wrong, you've put out all of your albums in under your own label. Yeah. yeah. That is incredible. And, and you know what's so, what I'm sort of slowly becoming aware of as I get, have more time on this planet is that that was happening. I was doing that all on my own because of some upstart little idea I had in my head. Like, when I made my first cassette tape, I wrote Righteous Babe Records. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what my record company is, you know, and then it's sure. sort of, I evolved that idea. And, you know, I've learned about, you know, of course, then I became aware of all the little upstarty uh, indie people in the folk and roots world, like so many. And then, and then, and then all in the hip hop and rap, like, you know, all these like city, these communities uh, that, you know, have their indie little labels, they make their own CDs, they sell them in their community. And that just organically grows beyond your city to a region. And then maybe nationally or internationally, if you're lucky, if you're really connecting, that's just what I was doing. Like there's so many I think different subcultures in America where this idea was brewing. And so maybe I just, you know, I get a lot of credit for, I sort of hit the whatever, the mainstream awareness with this kind of attitude and this kind of DIY thing. But it was, it's sort of like it, but like you say, I was just a part of this process of it finding critical mass and being facilitated, of course, by the technology. So you decided out of the gate, I'm just writing this label on my cassettes at what point did you realize, because I'm curious what album or what year you finally 
had to reconcile to yourself, oh no, this is legit. We're doing this. Righteous Babe Records is a label now. You know, I would say, what was it? 1993 or four, I started employing my best friend and then my other best friend. Well, you know, my boyfriend and my, 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 my best friend from high school, you know, and that they were, and we got, we got a little two room office in a building downtown. We stenciled Righteous Babe Records and we got two phones and a fax machine, you know, and it was my two besties. And I think around 95, when they hired one of their friends and then, and then, you know, 96 or seven, we moved into a slightly bigger office and it was like, All right. And maybe, although maybe I might push a few years further down the line when we started releasing other people's records, you know? Yeah, sure. Then it was like, all right, I built something. We built something that is a house that people can enter and take shelter in, you know, not just me. I love that. What advice do you have? What wisdom do you have for independent artists that are getting going now? For I just, in general, I want to get off the ground. How do we do it? You ask somebody half my age. I have a 13-year-old daughter, so she shows me what TikTok is and what this, that is and what, you know. But, you know, I think my old school advice, though, which I don't think is ever maybe irrelevant, is go play live. Go play live. Whatever the context of how you, I don't know, expose, get exposure or... Uh, market your music or engage with uh, the music biz, whatever that means. I don't know, but I do know that the more time you spend one-on-one sharing music with people, the better you will be and the more ready you will be whenever, uh, you know, should the industry or technology or team or people, you know, actually put, you know, suddenly you're going to be in the spotlight if, if your dreams are coming true. Mm-hmm. And the more time you spent in college union, you know, rooms and, 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 and coffee houses and corners, uh, busking and bars and clubs and wherever, you know, Christmas crafts fair. Yeah. That's all going to make you stronger to meet that, to meet that dream. I don't think that advice is ever going to expire. Somebody half your age might just say, well, do everything online. You don't need to go out and tour and whatever. But I was thinking, okay, I I get, if you were just to look at the numbers, I could say, all right, I'm going to do a live stream show tonight. And it it could be $2. It could be free, whatever. It could be $20 for entrance. And maybe, you know, call it a a thousand or 2000 people show up to that for for whatever size artist, or maybe 10,000 people show up to an online streaming thing. And say tomorrow night you go out and you play for 300 people in person. The type of visceral connection, the human connection between you and those 300 is so much deeper than you and those 10,000 online because there's a shared human experience in the moment and that can't be replicated. And there's such a more powerful connection when it is in person. And when you do get the immediate feedback and you see the facial response, like the, ooh, that was cool response from somebody or the way that somebody connects with a certain way you deliver a lyric or something. That's just never going to get old. There's so many more dimensions involved when yeah. you're talking about that live context. You know, the virtual thing, you know, it's been really striking because I've had to do it lately. And it's a it's a one-way street. It really is a show. You, you are putting on a show and you're putting something out there. It's not a, an exchange, you know. And, and, in, and in some senses, there's a real, you know, I've had to think about it lately and, and be and, and feel crushed by it and violated by it. And, oh, God, performing for my laptop camera is like soul sucking weight, but do I need the affirmation? Am I just a attention hog or something? Affirmation hog? And uh, whatever, I've been thinking a lot about it. And I think that there's something very pure about it's just in one sense, a gift. Like you just give a gift. You don't know who to, you don't know if it fit them. You don't know if they care or if there's even still there, but you're giving a gift and that's beautiful in that kind of virtual performance. Like I'm just, but the, but the relationship thing of a live show is, 
is just multi, multi-dimensional. I think about, you know, if I'm playing to my laptop camera, I just sing the lyric with as much, you know, authenticity as I can, try to put myself in the song. But if I'm in a room with people, I can, in a moment, and it's not a conscious thing, this is what happens, you relate that lyric to what to that dude down front that just made that scene and the and the and the thing and the thing that's happening in the macro society that you all walked in from and the and what just you know and the dynamic in the room and the noise in the back or the you can comment on the moment and relate things to each other and joke about your commenting all while singing that same lyric like when you're really in concert with people you are interacting on dimensions that are kind of exponential i like that that's a really fun that's a really fun look at that i'm thinking and i'm just (laughs) i'm reminiscing in my mind and missing live music more than ever now that you're saying that Uh, yeah. (laughs) yeah i mean to me it's so profound when I really pay attention to it, when I see a great artist playing, perform group, people, musicians interacting, and the levels of communication, you know, it's mm. like, I am feeling so oppressed and I, but I have this really strong will to survive or overcome this. Oh yeah, well, I recognize that and I'm right with, or I want to support the conversation, the, and you know what, but you know, and things come in in the moment that comment on the, on the conversation. And it's, it gets very, there's so much that can be expressed in the playing of a note or the singing of a word that really only happens when people are in relationship. Well, and the way that people can connect with the lyric, just watching you sing it, and maybe even looking in their eyes as you connect with something. And with your writing, you mentioned you don't like singing as much about yourself and you sing about other things. But after listening to a lot of your catalog, it seems like my interpretation of a lot of the lyrics is that much of the writing is autobiographical. So for other writers and for people interpreting it, and, and for myself as well, because I'm curious about this, we, we all have things about what I'm about to say, but how do you reconcile the parts of yourself that you don't like or connect with? And how can an artist release themselves from that self-doubt with their artistic expression? You, you, you use the word you before you call out all that behavior. <laughs> you always point the finger outwards. <laughs> you did this and you did that. And it's funny after 30 years of writing songs to find the same themes, return again and again and again and again. And eventually you have to ask yourself, geez, Ani, what's the common denominator between all of these scenes? me you know like you're right i think whatever i guess i'm it's not as though i don't know that i'm exposing myself through every story that i tell you know that's kind of perilously obvious but yeah i think you just i mean i think right off the bat my approach was there's nothing unique about me the good and the bad you know, so the more honest I am, you know, and and as I started along the path of honesty and sort of whatever, confessional or whatever the words are that people use, and I got so much gratitude, this kind of outpouring, this kind of like, oh my God, you said that because I, I wanted, you know, I didn't even, you know, and it's, and, and, and noticing that Almost, I think, when you struggle the most and you show yourself not succeeding, not winning, not being the hero, it's almost like that's what people need more. That's what they respond to more. It's like, I saw you in Philly and you were pulling your hair out and screaming and you broke your guitar. I loved it. (laughs) And (laughs) and you sang this song about how you wanted to kill everything and then yourself. Yeah. I've noticed that the more you can be candid about your own struggles and imperfections, um, you know, the better, the better you can sort of serve people. You know, it's like we all, I I actually use that, that theory that I'm voicing now to uh, soothe myself with, you know, when I get embarrassed or ashamed of 
what I would have done do differently if I could, you know, I think, well, that's what makes you lovable kid, you know? Yeah. Is that any different than artistic vulnerability or is that exactly artistic vulnerability? I think that's exactly it. Huh? The bravest thing is to just be real. So, you know, those people who just do what they do best and do successfully and they stick with that and, you know, and it's perfect and shining. I mean, there's a triumph to that. And there certainly is like a, del a delicious wonderment to see people who can achieve that kind of perfection, you know, of um, image and what they put out there and how they put it out there. And um, but for those of us that are more on the other side of the fence of just like terribly imperfect, I think it gets more interesting, the more messed up it gets sometimes. Yeah. So much a part of your artistry, the way that I interpret it, is poetry. And it feels to me you come across as such a true artist in your poetry, in your lyric writing, in your music, in the messages that you say. My question is, because a lot of the music that I do is instrumental. If you didn't have lyrics to convey your message, how would you do it through the music alone? Well, yeah, I've been thinking lately again, I get probably a pandemic driven revival of this idea, but um, of making an instrumental record for once, for once and only, you know, like a, cool. what a challenge that would be for me. Speaking of how to keep yourself interested, you know, like it's an idea I had a long time ago. You know, I, I, I sort of feel like a lot of my music and my poetry is about like, yeah, it's like somebody coming up behind you and shaking you. Ah, you wake up, ah, there's a thing, it's ha happening now. And uh, as a person who, the person uh, that goes with those songs does not sleep well, you know, does not ever calm down, it seems like. So I have long had the idea of making the opposite kind of music and maybe record like a music mm. to fall asleep to, like a music mm. that asks you to let go of everything and not you know, not wake up to go to go to sleep, <laughs> go find peace, find the absence of all of that thinking and worry and striving and, and hoping and, you know, struggling. Um, and that would be a real challenge to me. But I think and I wonder now, I mean, I, I feel very grateful for being handed an instrument early enough. I don't know when you started playing, but I feel like there is, uh, you know, whatever, the 10,000 hours, or there's a sort of a, a threshold you cross where you can be as free and intuitive and expressive with an instrument as you can with your own body, with your own. And that is takes a lot of work. And so for people who have the opportunity and who achieve it, it's such a gift. And I, I believe I have sort of had that with the guitar, you know, because um, I started early and I dove deep and it, and it became an extension of my body. And so, you know, sometimes I have had the experience of being on stage and I'm singing my face off and there's a whole lot of words going down, but I feel like there's a veil that I'm, ha I'm having a hard time being true and open with my voice voice, but the truth is all in my hands. Mm. Everything that I'm saying tonight, my guitar is saying like, you can't trust my face, you know? So I feel like, my guitar has been there for me when I need to express something or get something out uh, uh, and is available for that. I wonder if it still is because I haven't played a lot. <laughs> These kids, man. Yeah. But uh, so I don't know if my window for the instrumental record has closed, but I mean, a lot of the music that I, that changed me is instrumental music and there's no lack of things being said. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like you would be able to express yourself in a completely different way. I, I wonder, I, I got to try now. I don't know. Talking to you. It's like, if, if you, if you start singing, I'll, I'll. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> play guitar. How about that deal? All right. I'll sing on one of your, one of your instrumental album yes! songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we found the next album that you need to make. <laughs> All right. You heard it here first. Okay. Collaboration. You have a couple albums out with Utah Phillips that are very different than the straight up Ani DeFranco albums. Can you talk about when and why to collaborate? 
and what you look for in a collaborator? Oh, I mean, just somebody who inspires me, who really tickles me, you know, gets my goose, gets my goose gandering. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Utah, Utah is just on the on the revolutionary art tip and on the really yeah. like really impacting people's ways of thinking about things and you know the kind of storyteller song almost more in his stories which is why i i i wanted to bring his stories onto record and those those collaborative records i made with him were just about featuring his stories which had never really been recorded but yeah that i just I mean, for me, there's just certain people. And I mean, I guess for the guy next to me, they don't look any different than that one or that one, but it's that one that I love. There's some people uh, that just really strike me when they open their mouth or they pick up their instrument. And I couldn't, you know, can any of us really tell tell why? It's just, there's some something there. So those are the people that I, lo- I, I love to uh, collaborate with, of course. The first song of yours that I ever heard was a collaboration between Soul Live and Dave Matthews. That's funny. Yeah, I was just doing an interview with Eric Krasno the other day. He's got a really cool podcast. And yeah. uh, we were talking about that. Yeah, that was that was awesome. I felt very honored that they covered my tune. And then Dave, we were joking about it all went down without my knowing. Um so to speak. And then I just heard the track, the recording and thought, thought it was cool. And, and I, and then I, after the fact, I got a drunk call from Dave, <laughs> my one <laughs> drunk call of all the, the great messages that have been left for me over the course of my <laughs> journey that I should have saved. That one was in there, but um, you know, saying whatever, some words to the effect of, I hope I didn't fuck up your song. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, when I was a teenager, I was such a Dave Matthews and Soul Live fanatic. And oh, then wow. when I heard that song, I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe this song that these guys wrote. This is incredible. I look at the album credits like, wait, who's this? Wait, what? Who's this? And then I went down the rabbit hole and found all of your music. And that's, that's oh, actually wow. how I first found oh, you. Wow. That's great. That's awesome. You know, it's funny, though, in retrospect, if they had like called me when they were going in the studio, I would have said, Dave, sing it in the freaking first person. Tell us about being a joyful Mm. girl, dude. Come on, man. I sing boys songs all day long and I and I embody them. And and so we must to translate each other to ourselves. And, you know, and when I heard it, I was like, dude, (laughs) be the joyful girl. Yeah. Well, maybe you guys need to recreate it. Yeah, I know. Is he a joyful girl now? Is he ready? I think he is. He's got his own Sirius XM channel now, so. Oh, yeah. All right. All right. I'm pursuing him, too. (laughs) There's all kinds of good uh, new ideas here. (laughs) All right. Great. I'm I'm glad to help. (laughs) Well, I have one last question because a lot of people that are listening are not necessarily trying to be an artist themselves who's putting themselves out there. A lot of people are being hired by other artists or part of a band, and they don't necessarily want to put themselves out there so much. So they're wondering about advice on what other artists or band leaders are looking for in a guitar player. So is there anything in particular you look for in a guitar player or anybody else, I guess, when you hire them to play in your band? Oh, absolutely. Just listening. You can hear people listen. You can hear people playing and playing and playing and playing. And you can hear them even louder listening. And in fact, I mean, some of the jazz greats, I mean, the greatest, the greatest players that I've ever heard, that's what I learn through their music is how to listen. I I hear them listen and react to the people and the energies around them. And it's it's profound gift to let somebody into your brain that way. And be, you know, and I think, you know, even for the lead guy, if you're just putting yourself out there, putting yourself out there, there's something missing. You know, the better I do is the more that I'm listening to the whole thing and interacting and 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 vibing with what somebody else just commented, you know, with their instruments or, you know, having 
of that real relationship that involves mostly listening. I mean, certainly on a very specific tip, if you're working with a singer, you know, a singer is invested very much in the singing, in the words, in the story, if there is one, or the energy being communicated. Mm -hmm. So follow that, tune into that. You know, of course, the whole picture of everybody playing together, not just listening to yourself, but also everybody together follows the story when it's a song with lyrics, you know? Mm -hmm. So what do we all say to this moment in the story? I love that. Both of those are so huge. Yeah, right? That's great. I love that, the way that you phrased that second part. Sometimes it's just, well, follow the vocal and don't get in the way of the lead. But the way that you put it there is much more purposeful. It's, it's because it's part of something, again, something bigger than uh, what you're yeah. doing, just the yeah. guitar part. <laughs> yeah, we all serve this, this, this bigger thing and it carries us, yeah. Well, Ani, thank you so much for your time. This has been really great. Uh, it's nice to meet you in the in the rectangular box here of the internet. And yes. hopefully in person, we'll be able to meet sometime. And I can't wait to hear your instrumental record when it oh, comes out. Man. I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not trying to put any pressure on you, but yeah, I can't I wait it. till it comes out. Ah, I love it. I love it. That's good pressure. It was a total pleasure talking to you too, Corey. Thank you. All right, how about that? What a great interview. She's awesome. I really like her. I would like to hear an instrumental album of her music. <laughs> well, I do still like the, the music that she makes with lyrics, but I'd be interested to see how she pulls off the kind of message and purpose that she has with instrumental music. Because that's always something that's been really interesting to me and maybe some sort of a riddle also in some cases that I try to solve with my music. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Make sure you save, subscribe, all that stuff because that way you get notified. And then, you know, if you leave a comment on the podcast in the podcast app, whatever, it helps us. You know, we want, I want to, I want this podcast to be successful. Everything we do, we want it to do well. And those sort of things help me out. So I appreciate it. Rate me, you know, a good rating and leave a positive comment if you think I deserve a good rating and a positive comment. All right, all right, all right. Next week, Peter Frampton is on the show. Oh, 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 oh. talk about a total ledge. I'll see you next week. Don't miss it. Peace. <laughs>